Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Conversation on New Jersey Education. I'm Ray Penny. I'll be your host for this afternoon's program. Uh, if you want to participate in the program, uh, you can. We have two ways to do that. We have a chat room feature. Uh, all you have to do is log in with Blog Talk Radio and uh, register with them. And if there's no fee for that, and you can type in a question or comment, and I'll pass it on to our guests. Or you can uh, just call one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero one eight nine zero four. I'm sorry, uh, and press the number one, and that will um, uh, register on our switchboard. And Robin, who's manning our switchboard, will be able to get your uh, information. Uh, this is part of a, a series of school law discussions on various topics that have changed because of the pandemic. Uh, today we'll be focusing in on Executive Order 175, which was Governor Murphy's most recent one, um, So, uh, and how the implications of that executive order. It's an overall look at how we're reopening our schools. Uh, with me is Jonathan Bush. Jonathan Bush is with the Bush Law Group. Welcome, Jonathan. How are you? I'm doing great, Ray. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's our pleasure. Um, just a brief thing about your law group and how long you've been in school law. Absolutely. So uh, we founded the Bush Law Group in August of 2014. We're actually coming up next week on our sixth anniversary. We started with seven boards in Middlesex County, and now we're in 19 counties throughout New Jersey, um, representing districts throughout the state. And, uh, boy, has this been a roller coaster over the past six or so months. <laughs> uh, yes, it has it's been a roller coaster, and I'm not one who's much for rides. I have to tell you. So, um, <laughs> so let's actually it, it, uh, we're going to look at executive. Go ahead. No, just go ahead. You were going to say executive order. Okay. Uh, yes, the, the executive order uh, just uh, 175. But let's go back to when we kind of like started all this in June with the the road back and just a little historical as to how the executive orders work what their implications are on districts, and uh, till the, then we'll get into the details of the last one. Yeah, so, I mean, th- this has been, as I said, a roller coaster for everyone. Uh, you know, and districts throughout the state are, you know, people consider New Jersey. They always think about New Jersey. At least people from outside of New Jersey always think of New Jersey as sort of one way. Um, but any of us who live here really understand just how diverse our population is. And in each community, even bordering communities, really are, um, you know, very different from one place to the next. Uh, depend, you know, there's, there's so many different aspects to that. But one of, the, one of the most fascinating pieces of all of this has been the general approach. I think most districts spent, had very similar issues going from the period of, say, March through June. But we're starting to see a diversity of, uh, of approaches and responses uh, to the extent that the state has now opened the door to um, to you know to different different styles and different approaches because they've decided and determined that maybe one size doesn't fit all. So with executive orders that are issued by the governor, it's important to note that they have significant power and authority. The, the governor of New Jersey, as many people don't realize, is one of the most, if not, and I've heard this before. Uh, and there's a lot written about it, actually, the most powerful executive in the United States. And so the governor mm-hmm. you know, has a 
huge amount of authority to issue directives, to issue executive orders um, that are almost, have almost as much effect, for example, as a statute that's adopted by the legislature. Now, there's obviously the governor can't do anything, but on the topic of regulatory matters, for example, like this, like the schools, um, there's a tremendous amount of leeway, especially under these emergency circumstances that we have here. And what's really fascinating about it is how much, um, sort of how open the state has become to the different approaches that one school district has from the other. So we started, and you made reference to the road back. Uh, in, I think it was June 26th, the governor announced uh, with the, I guess, with the with the help of uh, one or two superintendents, the concept of the road back and how every school district had to consider a variety of factors, but there needed to be one universal approach to this in the sense that uh, the one universal piece of this would be that every single school district had to come back to in-person instruction, some form of in-person instruction. That changed after about a month or so, and in July, late July, we saw um, the governor now announce, you know, the, the, another executive order, which allowed for um, any parent who chose to have their child be, as they say, all virtual, so a virtual instruction, and they didn't have to return to school. But school districts still had to have an in-person element. That has changed as of last week with the executive order that's the subject of this discussion, but not as much as people think. And I think the misconception of what Executive Order 175 is intended to do is something that has created a bit of, uh, of uncertainty among people in the position of superintendents, school board members, and members of the community who are putting tremendous pressure and are incredibly engaged in school district meetings now. Um, as, as any of us know, we can measure it many times uh, how many people you know, are are engaged in meetings because most of these meetings are virtual these days and you can see exactly how many people are watching and the, the sense is that many people in the community especially parents are watching these meetings to find out just what they are going to have to do with their kids come September and so I think um, you know with the executive order there there people believe that under executive order 175 I said there's this misconception people believe that you know this means that school districts can now open virtually and while that may be the case, there's still this assumption that school districts are doing everything they can to return to in-person uh, instruction as soon as possible. And so this wasn't just the, okay, no problem, everybody can go virtual, that, that was being reported initially. The executive order really suggests that it's a lot more specific and tailored to the concept of you can come back, uh, you have to come back, but you got to come back when you're absolutely ready to come back, and I think that's where people are are, are getting somewhat confused. So, in, in essence, you just can't say I want to do remote because I, I want to go remote. It's more that you have to have a plan to go in person if possible, and that you can't go remote for some reason, whether it's the infrastructure or, I mean, uh, you can't go in person because of uh, ventilation in your buildings or you don't have the staffing there. So there really has to be a reason why you're going all remote, correct? Well, they, the, the executive order provided this paragraph two. <laughs> so everybody's talking about, I want to say everybody, I'm, I'm sure the rank and file person in the state of New Jersey is not talking about paragraph two, but the people who've been living and breathing <laughs> this since last week 
talk about paragraph two of the executive order, which, you know, I'm not going to read through the whole thing because it would take too much of, of our precious time here. But, you know, paragraph two describes the requirements that school districts need to fulfill in order to come back. One of them is you got to be able to make sure that the kids and the, the staff are going to be able to social distance, right? Face coverings, routine cleanings, uh, facilitation of, you know, student hand washing, use of face coverings, screenings of student and staff health, you know, the kind of stuff that we're seeing even, uh, you know, not just in the school context, everywhere these days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but, what's, but what's, what's so interesting about this is that the list of, um, you know, in paragraph two includes some of the more obvious pieces, but w- some of what we're hearing now from the school districts as to the reasons why they may not be able to open, uh, uh, you know, diverge from those exceptions and or I should say those those circumstances for example and you mentioned it Ray one of the big issues that I think a lot of us are, are concerned and thinking about is will you know if, if you're a district that wants to open uh, at the beginning of September will I have enough staff members to do so mm-hmm. and I think and that's, that's, not, and that's not specifically that. listed by the way and that's not specifically listed by the way in the in, in paragraph two. Okay, so let's just go over the requirements. If someone wants to go, what are the requirements for re- remote learning? Because there are requirements. So, for that. right, right. So if you're if you're going to go to all, so let, let, let me just say one more thing before we get into that, and I I want to go through some of the what's required for the remote learning, but. Um, the idea, again, let's go back to this. The idea is that the state expects every single school district, based on the order and based on the comments of the governor and his staff uh, at, at the last press conference last week uh, on this topic, the governor and the state of New Jersey expects every single staff member to return, excuse me, staff, uh, staff and student to, to return to school unless there's some specific reason as to how that can't happen. So, for example, the staff uh, not being able to return could be one of those reasons, but it's not listed specifically in paragraph two. When, when assuming that one of those reasons exists, we now go into the idea of all remote instruction, right? Because if you're not going to be able to return to school in person, you have to have remote instruction. And there are, you know, there's a there's obviously this checklist for the reopening. Of, of school for the 2021 school year that still has to obviously uh, be complied with. And so at least one week prior to the first day of school, the Department of Education is required to have documentation from every school district that, um, you know, that identifies the building and grade levels within the school district that will uh, be providing full-time remote instruction. So for example, some districts may say, okay, uh, our elementary school is going to be able to open for in-person instruction, but we're really concerned about our middle and high schools, right? So in that case, if a district did something like that, they would have to submit the evidence of the middle and high schools, um, uh, I should say the, 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 uh, the middle and high schools full-time remote instruction. Um, you'd obviously have to show specifically which of the paragraph two standards that a school district's not able to satisfy. Um, you've got to then show 
that and this is the part that again people I don't think realize, and that is that the, the district then has to show the way that they are the ways that they're working toward um, you know satisfying those standards. And then the last piece is the date by when the school anticipates the resumption of in-person instruction. Now, one of the hardest things I'm seeing on the ground here, and I presume that many of the board members are concerned about this as well. I'm seeing it live either through virtual meetings or some of the in-person meetings I've attended. I'm seeing it, um, you know, in, in comments that I hear just from members of the public and in the community. One of the biggest questions people have is, okay, so it, it's not okay to open in the beginning of September for whatever reason. Let's say a district decides that they cannot open because they can't fulfill all the standards in paragraph two and beyond. Uh, so then, then, then the question is, whatever standard you've articulated to your community, is that a standard that you will be able to meet, let's say, in October or in November? Does the transmission rate go away at some point? Does it become close? You know, now as the governor reported, it's hovering around one at this point. I didn't see what he said in his press conference today, but it seems to be at this point around 0.9, uh, 1.0. Right. Does that number then mm -hmm. go down to point seven at some point? Does it go down to point six? Does that suddenly make it OK for a particular school district to then say it's OK for our community to go communities to go back? Because if I have any advice, generally speaking, I think it's really important that when a school district articulates what the reason is for them to be able to the reason that they're not having in-person instruction, that that's an accomplishable goal within the context of coronavirus, because let's be fair. This, this, this executive order does not allow school districts to simply say we are not having school again until there's a vaccine. Let me, let me repeat that. Executive Order 175 does not say to school districts that it is okay to return to school only when there's a vaccine. And so most school districts have to run on the assumption that they're going to have to return in person, at least at this point, based on Executive Order 175, they're have, going to have to return in person while the pandemic is still here. Okay, I, I think that uh, I got, uh, I saw that, and uh, so that means they, while they're say they're doing remote, they still need to have a plan for going in person or some hybrid fashion of that as they move forward. That, that's right, and. And, and, and part of what, what we're talking about here is in the plan that's being submitted, you know, we're making assumptions here. We, we have to, we're assuming that the, that the state is going to allow school districts to justify what it is that they're doing. But if the, you know, if the state really wants to be difficult because they don't believe, for example, that a school district is making good faith efforts to, you know, to, to fulfill what it is that they're saying they can't fulfill in paragraph two, it's possible that they can still force the school district to their original plan and force them to return to school as soon as possible. So, you know, we're making a lot of assumptions that the district's going to just allow, uh, sorry, the state is just going to allow school districts to, 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 you know, make its own plan and then just obviously, you know, follow that plan and, um, you know, and, and come back to school when it deems necessary. There really needs to be actual demonstrable goals and measurable progress towards those goals in order to ensure that that the school districts are fulfilling their responsibilities to the state pursuant to this executive order. 
Now, uh, in this executive order, are there any new requirements for the either the in-person or the remote learning standards, or did, I mean, the requirements stay about the same? They're about the same. I mean, they're, they're, they're the one saving grace. I mean, this is listen. It's been chaotic. It's been a roller coaster. We joked about that at the beginning of this conversation, but the requirements are still the same, right? The remote instruction still has to be, um, you know, for the, the, they, the school districts still not need to have 180 days. Um, you know, they, they still have to provide uh, instruction. But one of the things I think we'll see, and I hope we'll see, for the for the sake of our children, is is that the remote instruction is more robust across the state than what it was at the end of the year. And I think it's excusable. I think the state understood at the time the pandemic came, uh, you know, in, in a way that surprised many. Maybe it shouldn't have, but that's another issue to discuss altogether. The reality is that we've never had anything like this in modern times. And so the concept of, and, and, and I think overwhelmingly, school districts throughout the state reacted appropriately, reasonably, and some exceeded expectations, for example, in stories of the way that Districts were able to, you know, deliver lunches to families who, mm -hmm. um, you know, are entitled to free and reduced lunches. Uh, the way that, you know, obviously, uh, uh, internet access and 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 computers were given in many districts to students who never had, um, you know, th those types of opportunities. That created and helped with the uh, equity concerns that many had. Now, I'm not saying it was done perfectly across the board, but the reports we got from some of our school districts, I know that I represent, were just remarkable. So there was some real heroism in that. That being said, and this is this is speaking as the parent, as a parent here as well as somebody who uh, mm -hmm. has been following you know education policy throughout the state, and that is you know I think that we all agree that instruction could have been improved, um, you know for the for, for compared to what was offered at the end of of last year. There were some you know shining moments, and there were some things that I think many districts from a curriculum standpoint would like to improve upon, and so I think we'll see that because of the thought that was put into this over the course of the summer and school districts have worked harder than they have this summer than they have probably in in years if ever right um, it, mm -hmm. the, the work that was put in has probably allowed them to um, create higher uh, curriculum standards and we'll see more districts for example doing the whole eight to three learning concept right where you you go to each class if you're a a student in middle and high school, you actually can log into each class and be in the class on time as you would be, have been expected to uh, be in before. Uh, if you're in elementary school, you'll be you only have instruction throughout the day as you as you normally would. So I think we're going to end up seeing uh, more of that this year. But you know, there's still there's still some exceptions in there. For example, there's um, you know there's a um, you know there, Executive Order 175 did provide, for example, the the concept of a waiver for the 2021 school year for um, student growth to be used as a standardized assessment um, as a measure of, you know, educator effectiveness and the evaluation of an educator. So, you know, there's, there's definitely still some concerns that the, the remote instruction piece won't be as robust as it would have been uh, in person. And I think there's a recognition of that in, in the executive order. But, you know, um, I think there's no one knows, and no, no one really knows what to expect. We didn't know what to expect in March uh, last year, mm -hmm. and I think now that we're at the beginning of a new school year with that experience under our belt, we still don't know what to expect. But um, you know, they're they're creating a standard. I think that's fairly reasonable reasonable under the circumstances. Now, this whole uh, we've actually turned ed education kind of upside down, and this I guess the legal issues change a lot because nobody thought of 
these A B schedules where kids half the kids go on one day, half go on another, or a third, or whatever the percentage is. Uh, so there's a lot of issues that are tied to this uh, that districts are worried about. Like one is transportation, that I know in a, in a lot of districts is a big issue. Is there anything that they should be worried about from a legal perspective when they move forward on that? So one of the one of the most time-consuming pieces of our practice at a, as a firm since March has been the transportation aspect, and one of the reasons for that is, of course, these these bus companies, right? I mean, bus routes, bus companies are one of the most important and significant aspects of the daily business operations of a school district. And when you know there was a huge issue that that was created when in March when school suddenly stopped uh, in person right in person schooling stopped the question becomes what do we do about our school bus contracts well the initial piece uh, with, with the school bus contracts back in March and it's it's important to understand what happened then to understand where we are now was that the school the school buses bus companies were obviously demanding payment. Uh, and they were demanding payment because if they didn't weren't paid, there was going to be some concern about their ability to survive, of course. So um, negotiations commenced in some cases between school boards and, and the bus companies to perhaps pay them for what they needed to survive, but not for, um, for the unnecessary expenses like uh, employees or you know uh, gas or mechanical uh, costs and in the end really many uh, when, when many of the school districts said to us okay so we'd like to support our bus companies so we need them there for us for example when this ends um, they're going to need to still be in business and operational hopefully there there was uh, a concern from a legal perspective that you're paying perhaps for a service that you're not getting in return and as a matter of law, that is illegal. And so we, we really struggled with this, and it resulted in the state legislature adopting um, a, a, a basically the requirement that school districts pay their vendors for existing contracts. And so th that has become its own issue because now there's some conflicting language in that statute that's required us to really go back and forth, and now we're in litigation with a number of those bus companies over this exact same issue. Now school districts are cynical, right? They're viewing the bus contract as something that's of concern for them. Now they know they need to provide busing in some cases, some districts, of course, some don't require busing depending on their size. But the districts that do require uh, the everyday busing, for example, they're concerned about entering into contracts with them because they're afraid that they would be forced to pay the entirety of the contract, even if the services were not uh, being being used. So there's basically a lot of trickiness. So I guess I, I, one thing that's really important from a transportation standpoint is just that, that the boards um, have their eyes wide open. Um, and, you know, obviously there's going to be issues in terms of social distancing kids, right? There's a lot of different guidance out there from the CDC to, um, you know, various transportation uh, associations who offer, uh, you know, advice on, on ways to travel. But the most important thing I think that I've seen consistently is that kids be placed in every other uh, row, of course, but that, um, you know, if there is busing, and obviously by law, we're required to, school districts are required to provide busing under many circumstances for kids, there, there needs to be some understanding that we enter into these contracts with our eyes wide open as to the potential vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Because if things do shut down again, or schools are opening, for example, all remote, and who knows how long those school districts will be closed for based on the standards that they provide, 
um, you don't want to have to pay for a service that you're not getting. Yes, I, I've heard that concern, and many aspects, including uh, coaches and things of that sort. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of other issues that it's tied to everything. Uh, what about special ed? Because I know that was one of the group of students. Uh, we're worried about all the students, but that was one of the group of students that we felt needed the the in-person maybe even more than the other students. And you have IEPs that are, you know, difficult to do, if not impossible, virtually. Uh, you know, Ray, we which have, districts we be have, worried we about? Have, yeah, we have so many different concerns on special education. Um, you know, I, 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 I was speaking to, um, you know, uh, a parent of a, a student who is um, autistic, and uh, he was just describing to me how remarkably difficult it has been for, um, you know, for his family uh, since March, and that the, pro the, the pro all the progress that that particular child was making, for example, has has really rolled back since March. And so I I think that that I think that everyone, and you know, I know I know sometimes parent advocates can be cynical with school boards and their attorneys because it's our job to make sure that we're only paying for exactly the service that each child re is required to have and needs. Um, but you know, there's real concern real concern from, from all sides, parents, school districts, um, about making sure that all these IP requirements are met. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult time. And one of, the, one of the, you know, biggest concerns is that, you know, you have a federal now and state guidance that, that describes that, um, you know, obviously the, the child's IEP must be met to the greatest extent possible. That's the language, to the greatest extent possible. So we're now in this position. Are we doing what we can to the greatest extent possible? We've got to keep asking ourselves that question. And I'm wondering if a year from now we're going to be dealing with a, 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 you know, special education litigation in cases um, maybe you know, before OAL or before you know, our federal courts that describe whether or not, or I guess define what that means and whether or not the school district, in fact, filed the IEP to the greatest extent possible. And that's, I think, a huge concern for, for all parties in this and making sure that we're doing the right thing by these kids. But again, if you're having remote instruction only, it's more and more difficult to provide especially certain kids with the services that they need. Yeah, I mean, all these things that we're talking about could be an entire program in and of themselves. Um, that's right. I, I, and uh, we'll touch on this one, too, because let's look at the labor issues. I don't think teacher contracts on either side ever envision vir complete virtual learning, hybrids. I mean, if a superintendent would – I jokingly said if a superintendent proposed this idea, there would have been a grievance filed, like, before he was done talking or she was done talking. Um, right. So um, how should districts – approach some of the labor issues that these are not covered by their contract all the time. I mean, they are covered, look, these plans, by the executive order to a certain degree. It's, it's so important, and I can't emphasize this enough, for a dialogue between uh, the superintendents, the board members, um, in their capacity, obviously, as a negotiating committee or, um, you know, just generally to have the, the, the communication with members of the association. Um, you know, the, in particular, I should say, the, the leadership of the association. There, there's you know a number of districts that um, are having 
a real easy time with their association because they have the relationship, they have the trust that has developed over the years. And there's some districts that this couldn't come at a worse time for them, right? Because the association and the board don't have the functional relationship that, that all of us strive for. And so, you know, whatever the reason for, for that, those relationships, it has sometimes, in some cases, created a level of, of, uh, of mistrust on these issues. Um, I think it's important that the associations, the local associations, do understand that everyone, that the, the school districts, the school district have, have a job to do. And, these, and the boards have to understand that the associations also have a job to protect their members. But, and this is a really important but, the members of those associations are still teaching staff members or, you know, custodians or secretary, whatever they are in their respective districts. And those districts need those employees to be able to fulfill their statutory and even constitutional uh, uh, responsibilities to educate children. And so, you know, I think we're going to – we're really pushing – the like you said, Ray, this is not something that we've ever really considered or thought of, but we're really pushing these concepts to their outer limits, to ways and, and and stretching them to ways that we never expected to have to do, and it's going to put us all in a position where we may end up with you know pretty significant grievances or unfair practice charges or just general litigation. I really, really hope that um, you know that job actions uh, don't occur here. Um, you know, I think there's probably going to, you know, with, with, with over 600 school districts throughout New Jersey, I imagine that we could end up in some pretty difficult spots. You know, we always try to advise our clients that we don't want to be on the front lines of those spots because <laughs> let's let other people hash it out so that you don't have to waste your money on, on legal bills for those uh, kinds of matters. They obviously don't provide goodwill, and you never want to be in a fight with the people who educate your children. It's just not fun. No one strives for that, or at least none of my clients strive for that. So, you know, I think it's a really, really delicate balance. But let's be clear. The, the NJEA is a labor union, and it's their job to protect their members, right? I know they call themselves an association, but they are a labor union whose job it is to protect their members. And, and as long as people understand that, and they view it that way, then then the communication piece of this will be at least a little bit more reasonable, as opposed to some of the initial discussions in some of the more cynical districts I've seen. I don't necessarily like the way it's going. Yeah, and also this is a national issue across the, the entire country. Um, I think one of the other issues I heard, and this is mostly with the hybrid and bringing students in and staff into the building, is the district liability in all this? Is there a liability for a staff or student getting COVID? Uh, I mean, we we kind of touched on the special ed. I think they're worried about liability. We're probably, so what's the, I mean, that's a concern I've heard among many. There is a, there is a, it's a great question. There is a little known um, statute that, uh, that that's, that's actually 59, colon 6-3, which refers to the, uh, the, the responsibility for um, communicable disease for a public entity. And it, it's, it's actually something that I don't think many people ever had to consider or learn about. Right? None of us really were ever concerned, for example, that you could be sued for you know, transferring the flu during the normal mm -hmm. uh, course of business that we've had every year, right? Some flu seasons are just terrible, and we've seen that. They really do decimate uh, teaching staffs and, 
and student populations just because it transfers around, especially in in places um, where you know where um, you know especially certain communities we've seen it impact more. But what it says here is um, neither a public entity nor a public employee is liable for an injury resulting from the decision to perform or not to perform any act to promote the public health of the community by preventing disease or controlling the communication of disease within the community. So what that says is, on its face, what it says is that a school or a school, no school nor a school employee can be held responsible, legally responsible, for the fact that uh, that that uh, that someone uh, received COVID, uh, if you will, on their on their watch, how that plays out in application, we don't know. Especially if we have a situation where someone really um, was particularly neglectful in 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 the, not following the rules and procedures that were articulated to the Department of Education as part of the road back. But I think most important is that people know that this exists. It may put at least some minds at ease, and it will help people understand um, that, for the most part, and basically speaking, school districts can't be held uh, responsible for transmission of coronavirus. Um, as we move forward with this, we're coming towards the end of our uh, podcast, um, I always tell people, just be prepared for change. <laughs> uh, nothing's right. been set. It's, I say everything's etched in pencil. So, uh Right. Uh, what, what are some advice sure. you give? Yeah, uh, how do you uh, advise your clients as they move forward on a lot of these decisions? Uh, because there's so many, every aspect of how you operate a district is totally different. And so, the legal answers you may have given them and advice you may have given them a year ago is may is totally different now, and it may be different a so, month from uh, now. Yeah, and that's great. Great question, Ray. I, I I will tell you this: that our firm has been really on the front lines of this, as all school law firms have. Um, I think our firm has issued 15 alerts, uh, maybe 15, 14 or 15 alerts since this all started back in March. Uh, and for anyone who's looking for information that our firm has put out on any of these issues related to this public health emergency, um, I encourage you to visit our website at bushlawgroup.com/alerts. Uh, so it's Bush Law Group is B-U-S-C-H. It's spelled uh, with a C, B-U-S, like the beer, not the president. So bushlawgroup.com backslash alerts. And and there you can find a list of all of the alerts we've we've ever issued um, on general topics of interest. But in particular, you'll see a number of the issues here. And it's what's really interesting is when you read back to some of the stuff we were issuing back in March or April, you see where our headspace was at as compared to now. And what you're saying, Ray, is so true. And that is that, that all of us have to really consider and modify our plans and what we do because you just don't know what the advice will have to be tomorrow. So we're really just, we're, you know, because right now I'm sitting here talking about Executive Order 175 and what we have to do to get back. But in a couple of weeks, if someone were to come back and listen to this, they may say, well, little did they know, Ray and Jonathan had no idea that another executive order would be issued a week later, which said, you know, and who knows what it potentially could say. And so, so you know, you just can't get too far ahead. It's our job as attorneys and all of your jobs as, as people on the front lines of the school board world to make sure that you only consider what's before you right now. Because in moments like this, if you think too far ahead, you may be taking either an unnecessary step 
or a step that could have, for example, avoided a whole lot of anxiety um, and discussion. You know, one of the one of the, the 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 issues I look back on is the development of conversation regarding the return to school and the hours that were spent by boards across our state discussing the return to school when it turns out not to necessarily have been as necessary as they had thought because it turns out that Executive mm-hmm. Order 175 trumped some of the earlier executive orders that the governor issued. And so I'm not suggesting that they were at that moment uh, going too far. But, you know, we really, I think at, during times like these, we've really got to focus on exactly what's before us, address the issues that are before us, and then take these baby steps so that we don't bite off too much, knowing that in, you know, in a couple of weeks, the guidance could be entirely different. Yep. I I can't agree with you more because I had a superintendent I talked to in the conversation like this in April and he was like, my biggest worry is we're going to open in June. Let's put everything aside. We'll open in September. We'll be ready then. And when I talked to him in August, uh, July, he said, I think it's harder now than it was when I said those remarks in May or whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, it is. For sure. You just can't get too far ahead. It just, uh, And I think that's the hard part for most of our um, people involved in the education. They like to have the whole year planned out. And it's it's hard to have the the next yeah. month planned out. It's so, it's uh, not it's like not e- it's not easy. It's not easy to do this. No, and and I and I and I, it's, I I'll just tell you this. I don't envy the position of all these school districts when when you're going to have so many people who've barely had a summer as uh, compared to what they usually have. You know, people in education, frankly, most of the time uh, are used to having a summer. Right? Boards that meet twice a month don't necessarily meet twice a month during the summer. Maybe they meet once a month. The meetings are a little calmer. Right? Maybe they wear their flip flops uh, <laughs> to the meeting, as we've seen. Um, you know, school board uh, administrators are, are typically able to take their vacation days during um, you know during the summer. That hasn't quite happened this year, and so let's 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 ha- let's have some empathy as we deal with the school board associations members um, over the next couple of months, because I think it'll show, uh, you know, some of the some of the maybe frustration levels, some of the uh, the, the 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 rigor that they put in, uh, the, you know, the, the work they put in over the this summer will probably show in the next couple of months when they they seem a little tired or uh, feeling like they've been dealing with a lot. Let's have some uh, empathy and compassion passion for them. This is a lot for any organization to yep. deal with. And I would also say, if you, as you move forward this, you have to, it's a collaborative effort. You should keep your uh, school board attorney in the loop on all these issues and or decisions that you're making. Um, for sure. And we're all here as resources for our clients. Absolutely. Uh, so I'd like to thank Jonathan Bush for joining me on this podcast as we discussed uh, Executive Order 175 and our transition to uh, whatever plan the district chooses, I have heard all different plans. So, uh, and probably in a, six weeks from now, we can discuss how they're all working out. So, Jonathan, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Ray. Appreciate it. Okay, and I hope you all found this uh, enjoy, uh, informative, and uh, have a good afternoon.